Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, Sydney, can you hear me? And hello, Australia. We are being simulcast across Australia. This is really exciting. Greeting gorgeous readers, readers across the country. It's such a privilege to be here with you all and to celebrate the incandescent power of stories. And as we share our stories today, let us acknowledge the story of this place. We meet today on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today or watching across the country. May we endeavour to cherish and protect the stories of those who have come before us, to hear their beauty and heed their lessons. My name is BJ Silcox, I'm a writer and a literary critic, and if you'll indulge me a minute, I'd like to start this session today by talking to you about my mum. Um, she, in fact, may be watching right now in southwest Western Australia and Albany, all across the country. Um, can we get a hi, mum, for me? <laughs> hi, hi, mum! <laughs> yeah. My mum is a former school teacher and she's cultivated this deeply polite sort of code, honed from years of praising the mangled art of school children. Um, when she encounters something that she thinks is awful, she calls it interesting. <laughs> um, when she encounters something that she thinks is truly horrific, she calls it very creative. <laughs> and it's led to some sort of hilarious misunderstandings. She now owns a very large, very heavy, very permanent piece of lawn art that she effusively praised, and my dad mistakenly didn't pick up on the code and is now the centrepiece of their back garden. <laughs> now, book critics have the same kind of code, a sort of lexicon of veiled disappointment. So, quiet means absolutely fuck all happens. Um, <laughs> slim means barely enough for a book, should have been a short story. Complex means absolutely fucking unreadable. Um, <laughs> And strident means this writer is a polemical lunatic. <laughs> and then there's ambitious. We've all heard the word ambitious, which usually means fucking long or fucking complicated or <laughs> fucking long and complicated. Now, Eleanor, Eleanor Catton's brilliant last book, The Luminaries, was fucking long and fucking complicated <laughs> and ambitious in the best of ways. It was generous, it was immersive, it was sumptuous and gloriously, extravagantly, magnificently ambitious. So let's reclaim that word here today and wash the tall poppy stink off it. Because Eleanor Catton wants to do something in her fiction. You can feel the fizz and crackle of it in her books, the thrum of possibility, the alchemy of intention and attention. And that's why we're all here today. You don't need me to tell you about the prizes that she's won and the things that she's been lauded for. You're here. This crowd is testament to her storytelling ambitions. In her new novel, Eleanor has made the most grand and delightful pivot from the 19th century to a propulsive eco-satire. Burnham Wood is a sharp-tongued marvel. It's a tale of guerrilla gardeners who collide with a doomsday-prepping billionaire. 
Now, Eleanor sets her sights wide. Her book is a send-up of idealists and ideologues, of cynics and pragmatists, of activism, apathy and unfettered corporate greed and everything in between. It also includes the most depressing and distressing beverage scene I've ever read in a novel because what kind of psychopath <laughs> makes a hot Milo with sweetened condensed milk? <laughs> Me! No! I do! Psychopathic! <laughs> Being able to fight about this, Milo politics is very important. <laughs> but I digress. It is a, it is much a modern-day action thriller as it is a kind of grand political statement. But is it as much of a departure as it seems? Let's find out. Please welcome the magnificent, the ambitious Eleanor Catton. Thank you. Thank you for coming. It's so lovely to be here with you. Let's start with that question. Is this book as much of a pivot as it seems? Thematically, yes, but it seems to me that there's actually a real consistency in what you're trying to get at in your novels. Is there a question that beats at the heart of you? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I think that when I started writing Burnham Wood, because I knew that it was going to be a, a, a contemporary novel, um, I, I was going to try and uh, wrestle with political questions in a way that I'd, I'd never really tried to so explicitly before. I had this idea that it was going to be very different than my, my previous two novels, but I think because it's my third book and, you know, the third data point in any, in any sequence is always the really interesting one because you can start to see, you can start to see a, um, a, a journey, really. You can start to see connections. Um, I, I've ended up having a relationship with it that I, I kind of see it more as part of a family that includes my first two books, although they're quite different. Um, I think what I'm really interested in, what I've always been really interested in, is the, the kind of the pleasures of performance and the, 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 the doubleness of performance. When, when you go to the theatre, when you, um, you, know, you kind of observe somebody playing a role, in a sense you get this kind of double vision. You can see both the role that they're playing and the performance, the, 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 the person who's, um, the, the actor, you know, yeah. who's, who's inhabiting the role. And that interplay between the actor and the character, or between um, the role and, 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 and the person, I suppose, um, just really fascinates me. <laughs> I think it's, it's a kind of a lifelong preoccupation. And so I've, I've taken that interest, I've, I've kind of treated that interest in different ways in, in all of my books. But I think... Now, yeah. Now, now that now that Burnham Wood is out there, I can I can kind of see that it's like, oh, okay, that's that's something I'm I'm probably going to be interested in my whole life. Do you have an origin story for it? Can you? Did you have a traumatic theatre experience? <laughs> <laughs> Terrorised by a clown? No. Oh, I don't think so. I think that what interests me is that that I often. I, I think the irony of it interests me, that, that very often we feel most ourselves when we're pretending to be somebody else, um, or that the, the kind of the truest statement of authenticity or expression of authenticity can all, often be kind of the highest artifice, you know. Um, yeah, I, I often find that before public speaking, actually. I've, I, I got a piece of advice um, from a friend once, where she said, if you're, if you're ever really nervous before an interview or an event like this, just pretend you're somebody else. Like, just, just pick somebody who you really admire and just pretend that you're them. And so who are you today? Um, <laughs> I'm not going to tell. Um, but and my advice I got was have, a, like, have an outfit. So, like, this is my very pink performance jacket, but... 
and yeah. robe and disrobe. Oh yes, no, I like think it's actually yeah. th th there's great wisdom in that in that piece of advice that there's it, it is about kind of putting on a different mantle, kind of appearing in a different guise. So in this novel, how are your characters performing? What is the element of performance? Well, so so this book, um, I approached it with a sense of the form in mind from the very beginning. I knew, I knew that I wanted to write a Shakespearean tragedy in the, in the kind of truest sense of what that means. Because um, our title, we should... And people who have oh, yes. up the pun. So Burnham Wood is the wood in Macbeth. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So um, in, in the play of Macbeth, uh, Macbeth is prophesied um, to become the king at the very beginning of the play. Um, he then makes this prophecy come, come about by killing the king and, and um, taking his crown, but then becomes addicted to prophecy in a, in a way. He, he goes back and back to the witches, and eventually the witches give him this um, prophecy, which is that, they, that, that he will never be defeated until Burnham Wood, um, the forest near his castle, comes to the castle where he lives. Um, which he, he takes as a statement of impossibility. He hears that and he thinks, well, that must be another way of them saying that I will never be defeated because forests can't move. Um, and when, when I went back to the play, I was, I was, I was kind of thinking a, lot about, um, I was thinking a lot about political certainty, actually, and how, how, how dangerous it can be to be lulled into this sense of complacency or, or kind of smug righteousness in, in terms of your, your political beliefs. Um, I came back to the play and I, I, I suddenly thought, I, I, I wonder if this, this could be an interesting thing to explore, in, kind of in, in, in terms of a, a, a canvas of, of very contemporary characters, or kind of a, an ensemble of contemporary characters, where um, my idea for the book was that it would, be, it would become a book uh, that it, it took the form of a Shakespearean tragedy if any one of the characters could have been the tragic protagonist. So my, my, my ambition for it was that um, you would hopefully go into the book with your own political convictions um, and you'd think, okay, well, I know who the good guys are and the, and the bad guys are, and the good guys probably will include me and the bad guys will be very far from where I am. Um, but as you, as you kind of went on in the book, that, that sense of conviction would become more and more muddied, that sense of certainty would become more and more muddied. And so my ambition was that by the end of the book, any reader could make the argument that any one of the characters was the Macbeth of, of the novel. Um, so I kind of had to, I, I had to design it in such a way that they each, um, they, they each had a kind of a desire, a kind of a pull towards certainty, this, um, this, this kind of hunger for a, a, a prophetic vision of, of, of the future that would that would kind of serve them in some way. Um, they each had to have a Lady Macbeth figure on, on their shoulder, somebody who kind of goad them on. And then they each had to have a, a kind of a blind spot, something that they didn't see coming that, 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 that would eventually bring about their downfall. That sounds magnificently um, technical. How did, you, how did you map it? How did the cast arrive for you? Yeah, well, so, so the... The two things I knew from the very beginning, I knew, I knew what the book was going to feel like by the end. I knew, I knew the sense, I, I knew what was going to happen actually at the end in, in a very broad sense. I didn't really know how I was going to get Which there. Which we're not going to tell people because <laughs> you cannot give it away. I won't, yeah. I, I won't spoil it, but um, I kind of knew roughly what was going to happen in the last 20 pages. Um, and I also knew the title. So I'd, I'd coming back to Macbeth, I'd, I'd had this idea that I could... Um, 
call the book Burnham Wood and explore the sense of uh, the blindness that arises out of certainty, I suppose. That was, that was kind of my satirical target with the, um, with the novel. Um, the kind of the first encounter that, that, that came to me was the idea that this uh, activistic group um, who in the novel go by the name of Burnham Wood, they're guerrilla gardeners, um, could encounter a, a billionaire yeah. um, who's come to New Zealand, one of the unfortunately many people of this type, um, coming to New Zealand um, ostensibly to uh, build a, a, a bunker in which he's going to... Um, see out the, the end of the world. The, the end of the world, um, in which he's been, um, um, you know, massively subsidised by the New Zealand government, as we're so generous in, 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 in doing for the billionaires of the world. Um, and and so I kind of I, I had the idea for this encounter because I, you know, it's this collision of opposites that really excited me. Um, the idea of kind of drawing out the the, the inherent ironies of these people who appear to be at opposite ends of the political spe spectrum but maybe might have more in common um, than, than, than they would like to Absolutely. admit, than I either of them would like to admit. That's the great triumph of the book, I think, is that you place us in heads that we instinctively think are loathsome and then we realise that they have sensible things to think and place us in the heads of people who we would normally agree with who we just feel so deeply frustrated with them, this idea that this satire spares no one. Is that the only way to write satire that doesn't make it a polemic to spare not a single person? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's the only approach. It, it was the approach that interested me the most, partly because I, a, a lot of the thinking that... that um, kind of gave rise to this book had to do with my kind of deep uh, dissatisfaction and kind of fear uh, uh, fears about social media and about what happens, what is happening to us as kind of moral agents in the world. In 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 that our interactions with the world are so much mediated through algorithms these days. You know, if, if, every time we go to find out the answer to a question that we have, we go to our phones, we ask our phone a question, and the answer that comes back to us is not just a straight answer. It's not, it's not like the, an answer you would get from another human being. It's an answer that is that has conformed itself to all of the other things you've asked your phone in the past. So it's, it's, it's very subtly starting to flatter you yeah. and, and, to, and to, to, to conform itself to what it has decided you want. And I think that the, the, the fact that we've become so used to, um, to interacting with algorithms is, is kind of slightly, it's, it, it's making us more and more intolerant of difference, you know, more and more um, impatient with coming up against people or, or answers or, or um, you know, kind of any, anything that doesn't fit with what we expected to find. You know, I think that we've become much more impatient and much more uh, kind of quick to anger in a way. There's, there's, a, there's an element of, of, of an, an addicted personality that, 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 that I, I've observed in myself. You know, when I, when I encounter somebody online who is 
who has beliefs that aren't the beliefs that I think that they should hold. I, I, I kind of feel that there's this instant anger that rises in me, and I feel very worried about that. I, I think that as, as a culture, we're being kind of moved in a moral direction that is, is, is away from the human, you know. Yeah. And, 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 so, and so what I wanted to do with this book is to, to criticise that by um, setting myself the challenge of writing a book that would not flatter anybody, because I think that we are flattered constantly. We are flattered every time we open our phones. And that idea of performance plays through again when you're looking at mediating the world through a social media filter. That's also a sort of performative existence. Oh, for sure. Except for it's an exist... Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a good point, but it's, a, it's an existence where, in one real sense, you're not there. You know, you are in the real world and you are constructing an online identity that is that where, where you are not present. You know, you, you, it, it's only what, it, what you say it is. There's something that's, that's, that's very frightening about that as well. It is. And what strikes me is that the form of this novel has a real... It has a political heft and political... You are constructing something very clear. And I wondered whether or not that aspect of writer as performance sits inside this book. So how much is this book saying the things you want to say to us, or how much is it the book itself as a kind of form? Uh, I haven't tried... I'm yeah, not doing that's, very, no, no, that's, that's such an interesting question. Um, I, I, I believe that there really, there really ought to be a very clear um, d division between art and activism. You know, I think, I think that, that that's always been my approach, um, that at, at bottom, the... The job of a novel is to be a good novel, and actually every other possible ambition you could have for it needs to be secondary to that, to that kind of higher goal. Um, and so I, I was very interested in, in playing with what, what form could do to kind of, I don't know, push, push your sympathies one, one way or another. Um, but, but, but I would definitely stop short of ever saying, this is what I think about something, and, and therefore I want you to read my novel. No, this is not an act yeah, of, poli of political ventriloquism. Right. If, if right. anything, I left it not knowing at all what you thought. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm, I'm pleased. Yeah, Which that's is great. wonderful. I love yeah. to have my sense of certainty shaken. I find that's rare. How do you write a political novel that doesn't get weighed down by a polemic? How did you keep yourself out of it, in a sense? Well, I think I think my approach actually it was it, it had a lot to do with irony. So, um, by far, kind of putting Macbeth to one side, by far the biggest literary influence on this book was Jane Austen's Emma, which I adapted for screen a, a few years ago. And so I, I spent a lot of time with the novel. I've read it, um, re read it and reread it many many times. I know it really well. And um, I, in my kind of reverence for this book and my reverence for the design of this novel, I, I decided I, I wanted to try and emulate it as much as possible, which might seem a bit strange because they're, they, you know, if, you've, if you've read both books, they're not, they're, they're not terribly similar. Um, but one of the things I really love about Emma as a novel is that um, when you first start reading it and you, you're introduced to Emma Woodhouse, you can see at once that she's... You know, she's she's a monstrous character. She's 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 snobby. She's, she's full of monsters of literature. Right. She's full of herself. She's um she's you know there's there there she's she's thinks down to people. She talks down to people. In the in the first volume of the novel, she makes her first great mistake, which is that um, 
uh, the local vicar, um, Mr. Elson, is making love to her, and she mistakes his uh, attention for his attention for her friend Harriet. I think one, one of the things that's so amazing about this book is that every single person who reads Emma in, in this first volume of the book can see this mistake coming. It's very, very obvious. So they, they see that Mr. Elton is... Um, they oh. just know. They, it, it, it's of very, course, it's he's very so obsequious. How can you not know? Right. Yeah. But the cleverness of this is that in, because you see something that Emma doesn't, you start feeling quite superior. You start mm -hmm. thinking, oh, Emma's... You know, she's supposed to be so clever in everything, but I'm, clever, I'm obviously a bit cleverer than her because she can't, see, she can't see what I can see very clearly. And so you, you, you start kind of um, feeling in, in yourself this, this sense of superiority, which becomes the very quality that then Jane Austen is, of course, going to satirise in, in, in Emma herself. You, you, you almost end up becoming her in, in a way. And I think one of the, re the ways in which that book really succeeds is that by the end of the novel, when Emma makes these, these different um, blunders, um, these, these kind of failures of, of, of social etiquette, and she, and she really hurts people by the end of the, the novel, this, by then you're kind of in it with her. You, you, you are blamed as well. I feel like you blame yourself as well. There's, something, there's a very close identification by the end of the book. And, and I, I really, I, I love that about that. I, I, kind of, I admire that so much about Jane Austen. I, I wanted to, to borrow that kind of satire to say that, um, and, you know, in, 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 the, in the case of Burnham Woods, that you, you hopefully, my, my, my hope was with this book is that you, you can't really approach it feeling as though you're, you're, you're not implicated by the characters, feeling as though they're, they're people who you can... Um, you can judge externally. You, you, you have to become them as, as the novel goes on. And that, that involves acknowledging and kind of living with how complicated they are. You know, there are, there are good people that live inside bad people. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there are... And there the are opposite. And the, of course, you know, there, there, are, there are good things that we do for, the, for, for bad reasons. And there are, there are ways that we can be right and be so self-satisfied about the fact that we're right, that we become very, very wrong very quickly. Your, your answer is wonderful and ironic for a number of reasons because if I had been reviewing this book, the first person I would have mentioned is Austen. And oh, I'm, so, I'm glad. so excited, but I'm also incredibly self-satisfied now. <laughs> and you now entirely proved the point. I feel so smug and I'm like, oh no, I feel smug. Um, so yes, this interview is now an object lesson. But there is a real 19th century feel about the way you've written, particularly the first half of this book, the way the interiority of it feels like a real 19th century interiority that somehow resonates with us now because I think it gets at those deep insecurities that we all have. Yeah, yeah, I think that, I mean, I'd, what I love about the great novels of the 19th century is this, um, this kind of approach to action, I suppose, that I think that it, it, it's become very... It's become very old-fashioned to think of, you know, just a, a, a plotted novel with um, characters who, who do things and those things lead to other things, you know, like with, with characters in a plot. Um, yeah, I think that... It, well, I, I suppose to, to, to speak to my training as a screenwriter, which has happened in the intervening years between um, my two books, one of the things that you learn about it, as a screenwriter is that, in, in a sense, there's no difference between 
action and character. Characters reveal themselves through actions. And so you, have, you, you, you could have a situation where somebody could sit up on stage and tell you that they're a very good person, and that's, that's all well and good. But w what, what they do in the world, how they reveal themselves in their action, that's, that's where the proof lies. You know, it's, it's, it's in whether you, you, you do good things. Um, and, and, and what's quite interesting, I think, about our contemporary moment, one of the reasons why this has fallen out of favour, it, it seems to me, is that online, that, that distinction between what I say I am and what I do kind of disappears. There is no difference between saying and doing online. Um, in, in a way, we're all hypocrites, and also none of us are hypocrites online. It, 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 yes. it, there's, there's something very odd about it, that, that that crucial difference between saying and doing, that... Where, you know, the human morality depends on that distinction. That it kind of doesn't really exist. And human mercy too. Right. Yeah. That's an, that's an interesting thing to say. Yeah. Um, it strikes me in yeah. this book that all of your characters huh. know they're hypocrites, and I think that's really fascinating. They all refer to themselves at some point as fraudulent or traitors or hypocrites. They all know, and I wonder if that's the great malaise you think of our age that we're aware of our performance and we do it haunted anyway. by it and we do it anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, the, the character of Robert Lemoyne, who's the um, billionaire in the book, I've, I've very deliberately tried to write him as a psychopath. I read, I read a lot of books about uh, <laughs> psychopaths before I um, kind of started approaching him. And I, I'd become really interested in our kind of cultural reverence for psychopaths and how, yeah. how kind of yes. bonkers it is that we... You know, they're, they're the subject of all of our favourite TV shows, and we, we, they, they rule kind of we countries. We elect them all the time. We, we elect them willy-nilly, you know. And we're, <laughs> all um, the time. And we're also so we're so fascinated by them. We're kind of we want we want to know more about what what they really think. You know, what what makes them so dead inside. You know, we're, we're kind of endlessly fascinated. Um, I don't know. There's there, there's something really peculiar, and, and it it seems to me very contemporary about that. Um, again, coming back to algorithms, I started thinking of algorithms actually as fundamentally psychopathic in the sense that um, psychopaths are very often shapeshifters. They're very good at, at seeing when they meet you what it is that you want and conforming them, themselves to the picture of that so that they can manipulate you more easily. Um, Robert Lemoyne does this very yeah. effectively with Mira in the book. He, he, he sees the person she wants him to be and he, he, he becomes it. Also, um, they see the person you want to be. And, 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 and flatter you. Yes. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but, but they also see the world as a zero-sum game. You know, they, they, they see their, their success in any given interaction as necessitating your failure and, and, and the other way around. And there's a way that I think we've all come to see it, the attention economy as a zero-sum game in a way that, I don't know, for, to me it seems to just discount 90% of, of what a, 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 an interesting human life would consist of, to, to, to see things in that way. Um, and, and so all of this was, the, was in my mind when I was, I was approaching the novel. And what I really wanted for the book was, that, was for it to exist as a kind of a, um, a riposte, I suppose, to the things that I, 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 I felt very critical of and very afraid of in, in, in our modern moment. Um, but I didn't want to to talk about that directly. I, I wanted the book to exist as a counterweight to that. Um, so it's, yeah, because it's not an online book. It's not... 
we see characters interacting with the internet, but this is not a book that primarily happens online. It's, no, that's true, actually. Yeah, yeah so the, I, um, surveillance plays a big part in the, in the novel. I, I wanted the characters to be kind of surveilling one another at all times and, uh, and, and, and to make use of the narrative possibilities of that, I suppose. I don't, I, I'd become a little bit tired of a, a certain kind of contemporary novel where it seemed to me you could tell that the writer really wanted to set, in the, set it in the present. And then they were like, oh no, that means all my characters are just going to be on Facebook the whole time. And so then they, they, they start backdating it to just before social media explodes. Or they create a situation, I read one recently, where the power's gone out and everyone's <laughs> lost their charges. Like, I feel like half the dystopias that are invented are to get people off Facebook so oh, that yeah. you can have a plot. No, yeah. I, I completely, I 100% yeah. um, agree with that. But I, I, I'd even go further, which is to say that um, the mistakes that people make in plots, that, you know, plots are listeners of mistakes. They're kind of chronicles of blunders in, 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 in various ways. I love that description. That, that is, that, that's how we learn. You know, that, that's how we exist as people. That, that is morality. We need to be able to make those mistakes. And I think that this, you know, this kind of online... Um, I don't know, this kind of hellscape that, <laughs> that, that, that exists out there where all of our utterances, if, everything that we put online, it doesn't decay. It doesn't, it, it's not subject to memory. It's not subject to, to us in a way. It just exists out there unchangeably forever until we decide to delete it because it embarrasses us it's in some future political situation. <laughs> Um, and I just feel like there's something very dehumanising about that. You know, we're, we're kind of losing touch with how we make up our minds, you know, how we mean what we say and say what we mean. Our, 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 our memories are a huge part of that. Our, our kind of, our, our sense of creating ourselves in the moment, in the performance of the moment of, of the conversation. Our, our reliance on our devices has kind of outsourced the, the, the work of our souls, I think. We forget yeah. about the dignity of forgetting. Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, I, I, I believe that very strongly. Yeah. yeah. But what I've noticed is you, yeah. you blunder irony. You're using the language of comedy. You say you set out to write a tragedy, but you've written a comedy. And I, the, the line between those two things is gossamer. Yes, I, I do believe that. Um, you know, in... in, in Spending so much time with Jane Austen, I had come to see her as, as a kind of heir to Shakespeare's comedies, in, in a way. And so w when I had the idea for this book, I thought, okay, well, I just want to do exactly what she does, but I want the satire to bend towards tragedy rather than bending towards um, comedy, as it does in her, her, her novels. Um, but, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that there's that much of a difference um, between either comedy or tragedy in the kind of Shakespearean sense. Um, because both of both of them are are, are forms that, 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 that they can be completed, you know. There's there's a very formalistic direction you're moving in. That is, um, I wonder about the role that comedy plays. So I've, you know, I've read widely over the last few years of the kind of dystopias that we've been writing, and I think a lot of the ways that people experience them, because this is very much an Anthropocene eco novel. Yeah. So many of those that I've read have sort of been steeped in terror. They offer us versions of a future that's all yeah. too recognisable and they feel paralytic with terror. And I wonder whether or not there's something important and disarming about using comedy in writing about the absurdity of the situation that we're in that somehow 
propels a conversation in a way that terrifying people might not. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, any, any book that takes human beings really seriously needs to be a comedy, in, in a way, because that, you know, we're very funny and we, so we, we make really stupid mistakes all the time. And, um, and terrible and, Milo's. And terrible Milo's. I think, I don't know if you've tried this. I think that you should, I think that you should, maybe I'll we make one for you backstage. We will yeah. swap. Um, is comedy hard to write? Yes, it is. I mean, I... I I felt that this book was quite funny while I was writing it, but I, I didn't really know if it was until people started to read it. And there was always that, that kind of terror that you, you might just have a really twisted sense of humour. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's even worse if you tell people that you're writing a book that you hope is funny because then you're really raising the bar on what might be a very disappointing experience for them. Um, but I think, I think that what, you know, to kind of talk about this, this human element of, co of comedy, both comedy and tragedy... Because both forms are, are, are kind of fixed in a way, you know how Shakespeare's tragedies end, you know how Shakespeare's comedies end. In a way, in order to get to that ending, for, those, for, for that comedy or that tragedy to feel either happy or, or, or sad, you have to believe completely in the appearance of the free will of the characters. They have to appear as though they're choosing, you know, in a Jane Austen novel, they can't feel as though they've been shoehorned towards the ending. It, it has to feel as though it's coming out of who they are as people. Um, and equally in a tragedy, I think, you know, a, a novel that, that pushes for or kind of plumps for a, a tragic ending, um, but where you feel as though the characters didn't have a choice, that just feels like nihilism. It feels like, you know, more bad news, I think. Like you've strapped them onto a train and just set it going. Right. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is that as a novelist, you have just total control. You are, you are so powerful in terms of being able to, you know, you can, you can populate the, the novel as you please. You can say what happens. You can bend the laws of gravity if you want. You can, you can kind of make up any, any kind of rules imaginable. And so I think that that's why it's so pleasurable when you, when you find a character who, who is appearing to act of their own free will in, in order, in kind of being the architect of their own fate. Um, in, in, in this book, I, what I really wanted was to, hopefully, by, by the end of the book, to, to leave you with the sense that, yes, this, this book ends in quite a dark place, but... It's an ending that could have been averted at almost any step of the yes. way because it, at each point, the characters were making decisions. They were making decisions not to communicate with one another or to, um, to kind of be, be, be selfish or self-interested when, when, when they could have chosen better. And, and, and to me, that, that actually is a hopeful message. You know, if, if, if something didn't have to be that way... That, that, that's something it's that plot agency. can give us. Yeah. Right, it can kind of refocus our attention back on the fact that action matters. I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. Yeah, beautiful. Do you like being a little god? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that makes me feel very nervous that you say that because I, I gave... Um, one of the things I learned about uh, psychopaths was is that they very often <laughs> they very often have god complexes, and so I I'd, I'd quite deliberately tried to weave in in, in Lemoyne's sections in the novel and his point of view. There are God and Jesus re references just throughout because I, I felt that that would be how he would how he would He's see himself. He's such a cleverly put together character um, because I think it's really easy to write a villain at the moment. It's very easy to sort of pluck one out of popular culture and create a kind of eccentric. Let's, let's say an eccentric billionaire who 
owns a lot of shit and <laughs> sends things into space. Like we all have someone immediately in mind, right? And it's, and it's easy to think of them as caricature in one note. And you spend a lot of time showing us how much that is calculated and how much that is thought. And that is not just performative idiocy or some genius at work, but someone who's thinking about gaming things and thinking about power. Yeah, yeah, he was a really fun, he was a very, very fun character to write. He's one of my favourite characters in the novel, actually. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting we're talking about performance, because I kind of, I approached his characterization very much like putting on a, a kind of unconsciously, I, I, I realised when I was writing him that I would, I'd be kind of sitting in a different way, like a kind of, I don't know, a little bit cocky, and my, my head would kind of start wobbling around when I was writing him, and I'd, I kind of had these funny kind of cocky expressions on, on my face. That's great. Um, and then also I found that whenever I left his point of view, because the, the, the book inhabits multiple points of view, um, when I finished one of his sections and moved on to the, the section that followed, uh, it would take me a really long time to get, to kind of get into a, a different person's headspace because he was so, he was so kind of extreme in a way. Yeah. He, was, he was such a, I don't know, an immersion. <laughs> you couldn't yeah. get out of your skin. Yeah. Oh, he's even creepier now when I think about it. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, but he's, I, also, I, yeah. he's also deeply funny. Like I, yeah. I enjoyed being in his brain too because at some point he sort of says in the novel, oh, it's just easy. What you don't understand is how easy it is to take this from you. And for a second you feel the frisson of what it must feel like to be someone who walks into rooms and knows how easy it is to get what they want. Right, yeah. yeah. I was thinking a lot about Hitchcock with this, this um, book, actually. He, he, Hitchcock has two wonderful quotes. The first one is, the better the villain, the better the picture. <laughs> and and the, the um, oh, no, actually, no, the, the second one is not a Hitchcock quote, it's, it's somebody else, but it was something very much in my mind, which, uh, which is, uh, there are three types of scene in, in a movie. Um, there are negotiations, there are seductions, and there are fights. And when in doubt, seduce. <laughs> um, which I, I just love that, and so I kind of I, I figured that he needed to be a kind of a tempting figure in the book, um, a, 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 an alluring figure, um, an, an appealing figure. Um, he needed he needed to be fun to be around and kind of quick and and, and have a lot of charisma and he be does. kind of co conversationally quick. Conversation is something I really want to talk to you about as we we run out of time. But the dialogue in this book is some of the best sexiest bickering I've ever read. How do you capture those? There's a scene in particular, it has to do with soup. You'll encounter it in the book, but it's a scene that manages to skewer everything that's wrong with kind of progressive activism, how it tears itself apart from the middle. And rather than tell us that, you show us this incredible scene of bickering. How do you manage to capture dialogue so beautifully sharply do you talk to yourself like Gollum and Smeagol do you do you talk to someone else oh yes yes yeah a lot of muttering in the shower uh, for sure um yeah it's interesting you bring up that scene that far and away that that was the scene that took me the longest to write in the book it went through so many different iterations um I, I think one one of the things that's so wonderful about a conversation that happens in the room is that you know, it can it can kind of spin off at any one point. It can it, it it's so formless because there there are real agents there who who have their own agendas and you know believe passionately in the conversation taking one turn or another. Um, and so I found that the you know kind of wanting to keep 
hold of the satire and, 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 and the, the best way that I could was extremely difficult. And I, I, I would kind of get it wrong and then have to go back and rewrite the scene in a slightly different direction. Because wow. um, it reads with the beautiful effortlessness of effort. <laughs> when you know, like coming back to it, because I've read the book three times now, coming back to that scene the third time when you're trying to understand just how you did it, and I just think, fuck, that's talent. <laughs> that's just, yeah, it's beautiful. Well, I think, I mean, it comes back to this um, social media question for me, really, that there's, there's something that's so alive about, a, like, a, a, a real conversation that's happening yeah. between two minds. You know, we, any one of us, the only mind we ever know in the course of our lives from the inside is our own. We only ever know the outsides of other people's minds. Um, we, we can kind of get, get at it when we, when we read people's books. You know, we, we can situate ourselves inside other people's consciousnesses in, in, in interesting ways and kind of learn to think as they think. But, but there's still this kind of negotiation with the other that's, that, that's happening in real time. Um, and I, I, I just feel this great longing for it, I suppose, in my personal life. That you know, we we the, the the word debate is used so often these days just to signal any kind of contentious issue. It's like the debate about you know fill in the blank, um, but it doesn't seem to me that anybody's really debating. It, it seems as though we're all just very sure of what we believe and we're very cross that other people feel differently. You know, and, <laughs> it's and, a collision and, rather than a debate. <laughs> yeah, but there's something so I don't know. There's so kind of sexy almost about about a, a real argument that, that that happens in the room. It's I, I find it very. Um, I, I just have this hunger for it. And when, when I encounter it in fiction, I, I get so electrified. And, 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 and is, so I, I kind of wanted to give that to a reader as well. It's sexy in the book. There are times when I'm trying to work out, are they flirting? Are they debating? And I loved that I didn't know, and that was probably both. It's, it's wonderful. Palpably to me, you seem like an author who learns from every book that they have done and takes what they've learned from one book and applies it sort of to the next book. And I wonder if you might talk us through that journey of learning and how what you've learned from this book might inform what you might write next. Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I th my, my first two books were very much... Um, kind of experiments and archetypes in, in, in two quite different ways. Uh, my first novel, The Rehearsal, takes place at a, um, a, a girls' high school. And it's, it's kind of in this, this liminal space between... Well, you, you don't really know whether you're watching actors playing roles or, or, or kind of the, the characters who the roles are based on. I love this um, book. Go get that book. <laughs> and then with the luminaries, uh, I was still very interested in archetypes, but um, I kind of had this kind of bizarre idea for that book where um, I wanted to see if I could pattern the action of, of, the, um, of the plot on the real-life movements of, of the stars, um, the, the zodiac and all the um, astrological planets as they revolved around the Hokitika goldfields in, in, in the 1860s. So I kind of used this, this star map and, and, and kind of found a, I don't know, kind of beamed it down to Earth, I suppose, and kind of found, found a narrative there. Um, and, and I feel like with, with this book, this, this feels much more mature to me. I, I don't know if... If I'm, I'm allowed to, <laughs> so, yeah, self-diagnose that. But I, I've kind of in, in myself, it feels more a, a more mature version of that project, and that um, I, I, I've kind of learned how to bury the design a little more. Um, this again came from studying Jane Austen, actually. That 
you know, her, her, her characters are so immediate and, her, and they're so present, they're so real, that you would be forgiven for thinking that her books are not really designed. Um, but when you start looking at a book like Emma and, and kind of writing down in, kind of in columns all, all of the, the, the shadows and, and, and uh, axes of symmetry and kind of mirrors that you see, you, you realise that it's this, this exquisitely designed book. It's almost like this kind of game of chess that she's playing with herself. Um, there are just all, all sorts of echoes kind of e everywhere. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think for me it's, it's been a... What, what I kind of see in myself is a, is a kind of a journey towards, towards character, I suppose. Kind of seeing as at, at the beginning of my career, I kind of saw it more of, as a... I, I saw experimentation more as a kind of a, a fun game that I was playing, and I, I think that as, as I've kind of gotten older, I've got more of a, I've got more of an interest in human beings, and then the, the kind of the the balance is shifting a little bit. It shows. Um, it really shows. Yeah, I've I, I've already started writing my fourth book, um, and I, I'm working in the in the first person for the first time, which is which is really fun for me because I've. I've, I've always worked in the third person. I feel much more comfortable in the third person. And I, I also really enjoy moving between third person perspectives. So, so inhabiting one person and then, and then shifting to inhabit another. And so it's quite fun to be in the first person and not being able to do that because you're locked inside one, one person's consciousness. You know? How do you feel inside um, their body? How does it feel to inhabit them? Oh, it's, oh, it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. It's, no, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm having a really good time. Do you um, hold yourself it. differently yeah. in their head? Um, I, I don't feel like I know them that well yet. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. It's less of a. It's it's more emotional. I think it's more of a. Okay, you know, like wh where are you going to take me, Fabulous. rather than rather than coming from the outside in. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Do we have any questions? Did you have a strategy coming in to maintain um, in your work that beautiful consistency that just felt utterly seamless in both the Luminaries and Burnham Wood? Is it something that comes naturally to you or do you have to work on the stamina for that? Oh, I, I, I'm a very, very slow writer, so I'm not, I'm not somebody who can just kind of go. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time with my cut and paste functions and my kind of dele deleting and writing the exact thing that I just deleted and then deleting it again and getting cross and writing it again. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, th I, I found with both Burnham Wood and The Luminaries that the, the first paragraph of the book took me about, um, I don't know, uh, six months or so to write. But once that first paragraph was in place, and I knew what the, I kind of knew what the novel was. I knew I kind of could hear it or, or, or something. There was something kind of ineffable about it. Then, then, then it could kind of start to grow from there. But I always find that that kind of, you know, how, how to announce yourself to the reader on that first page is 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 kind of it represents the most work that I do in in, in the whole book, I suppose. Um, I, I read aloud a lot when I work, and I, I, I often read it aloud to my husband at the end of the day, um, though that very often ends in tears, because I'm, 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 not, I'm not always the... My tears, I should say, not, not, not his tears. <laughs> Hopefully. Imagine Usually. him strapped to a chair yeah. weeping. <laughs> yeah. And then um, you would be a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have another? Yeah. 
I've heard the word political a lot, but I've found it a deeply philosophical book. So I'm just wondering what your background is in philosophy and whether you did a lot of research about a lot of the theories that you actually bring up in the book. And also, what's your thought of um, novels, being a novel, obviously, being the most important thing for you, but as narrative ethics, actually showing us as readers, guiding us and examining our own thoughts and how we think and how we morally behave? Um, I did do a lot of reading before beginning work on this book. Um, I, I don't have a background in political philosophy, but I felt that with um, Tony's character in particular, I was going to need to have to read all of the books that he would have read to kind of understand what, what he would what, what he would think, you know. Um, and I, I read a lot of books about the, the history of the Occupy movement, um, kind of David Graeber, um, Mark Fisher, people like that. Um, uh, Oh, an absolutely wonderful book um, uh, called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which I recommend to everybody. It's kind of a, um, a, a feminist um, um, kind of, you know, um, exploration of modern economics. Um, and, but, but, but I think for me, the, 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 the non-fiction reading that I do before um, writing a project is it's kind of about finding things to say, finding what, what my position is in all of these, the, these issues. Um, it doesn't always make it into the, the novel um, directly. Um, so, for example, um, Tony uh, did, did a degree in political philosophy in the novel, and his, the, the, the subject of his thesis was critiquing the anti-humanism of post-structuralist political thought. And um, that, just getting that half sentence took me about two weeks of reading, because I... I I didn't know what would have been a, a kind of a thesis that he would have been attracted to, but once I once I got that and kind of was was able to kind of feel like I knew what his experience would have been, it it it, it helped me feel that he was uh, was real, I suppose. Um, yeah, so yeah, re reading nonfiction is very important to me at the very beginning of of, of the book, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of to me kind of. Politics is about action, really. It's and whereas philosophy is more about uh, asking uh, asking the reason why we do things. I, f I, I think that, that that fiction is kind of inescapably philosophical, if if it is moral, which which it, it should be if it's doing its job properly. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm always a bit resistant when I find that a novel is trying to teach me something. Politically, or, or trying to advance a political point of view, um, I, I, I feel it, it kind of gives me a feeling of rebelliousness, and I, I quite often will kind of reject the novel on those grounds. I'm, I'm much more receptive to a, a, a book that is um, kind of am ambiguous and not not kind of the bad kind of ambiguity, but the kind of ambiguity that is slightly wrong-footing you or, or, or surprising you in ways that you didn't expect. I'm always looking for books that leave space for me to make up my own mind or trust, right. trust me to make up my own mind. I feel like, and I can understand why, but I feel like there's a kind of move to not quite trust that the reader's going to land where you want them to. And yes, I think there's something deeply generous about writers such as yourself who dare us to step into a book and make our own minds up. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it, as for, kind of the, from the writerly point of view, I suppose, it, it is, it can be frightening because they might, people might be led to a, the, the a conclusion that you don't necessarily want them to be led to. Yeah, they might think you know? that your villain, Robert Lemoyne, is fucking excellent and <laughs> that you should all follow him on Twitter. Um, okay, so I was just interested to, to hear about the, the role of New Zealand in, in the novel. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel um, as a New Zealander, often, I, I feel very frustrated at the, at the way that New Zealand is able to trade on that reputation while very often doing, you know, enacting policies that are just kind of give, give the lie to it completely. Um, when I've been touring with the book, because I've, I've been speaking a lot overseas about New Zealand's relationship with property, this kind of obsession in New Zealand with property, which I think exists in this country as well. Um, and many people overseas are very surprised to learn that um, New Zealand has no capital gains tax at all, and that the top tax rate is, you know, a full kind of 10 percentage points lower, and what was until recently even, even bigger than that, than it is in Europe and in the United States. That this, this is a, a country that we all have this image of New Zealand as being very progressive, but in fact, it, you know, it's, a, it's very, very... It, I mean, it's famously hospitable to the world's ultra-wealthy, and it, it is doing a lot to accelerate inequality, not just within New Zealand, but, but also, you know, through these billionaires and millionaires around the world as well. Um, you know, I, I, I always found growing up in New Zealand that there was a lot of um, uh, kind of self-exception that went on um, in, in terms of the national identity, how it was phrased. And I, I noticed that a lot in myself, that I would often define New Zealand to people elsewhere negatively rather than positively. So I would, I would choose a, a different country and say, well, in New Zealand, we just don't do that, rather mm -hmm. than saying what we did do in New Zealand. You know, I think that there's a, um, there's a great comfort that New Zealanders feel in being the country being from a country where it's kind of not really our fault, you know, I think, I think that that's what people feel. And there, there isn't a great sense of complicity in, in global injustice. But that in itself, I think, is a very dangerous position to occupy because, of course, we are complicit. You know, we are, it's not as though when you pollute in New Zealand, you're polluting in a different way than if you pollute overseas, you know. Um, I, I, I think that I notice it a lot because my husband's American and so I, a lot of my... Um, home life is involved in kind of contrasting the two countries because we've got family in both countries. And I, I really noticed that in New Zealand there's, there are a lot of phrases that are, you know, Kiwi something, that I think that if, if New Zealanders heard that same phrase but heard the word American instead of the word Kiwi, they would just find it insufferably chauvinistic. So the, um, the idea of a Kiwi childhood, for example, everybody's obsessed with the Kiwi childhood, which is, by the way, the best childhood that anybody could possibly have. You know, um, but I think that if, if they were to hear, you know, I want my child to have an American childhood, they would recoil. Um, and so that, that's kind of an interesting experiment for me. I quite often um, swap out the words and see if, see if it's still tolerable, you know. We have time for one more question, and we're actually going to take it from my home state of Western Australia. Do you find it difficult to switch between writing novels and your screenwriting? Is it a totally different mindset? That's from Annie at the Bindoon Library in Western Australia. Hello, WA. Um, yeah, great question. Um, oh, they're, they're so different, really. I mean, the, the first thing that is different about them is the fact that Screenwriting is commissioned, whereas when you write a novel, you're, own, you're your own boss, you know, so you don't have to please anybody, um, you don't have to play by anybody's rules, and if your editors tell you to change something, you can just ignore them if you don't, if you don't <laughs> want to, you know. Um, when I first started writing this book, it was after having worked in the screen industry for a few years, and I, I was just I was so excited to come back to a, a kind of a writing experience where I didn't have a budget and I didn't have a schedule. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the first sentence of this book, uh, a 
but there's a, a few earthquakes, a landslide that closes a mountain pass, five people are killed, and a um, truck goes over a precipice and explodes on a viaduct. Mm. And I was just so aware when I was writing this that any producer, if they saw this uh, written down, would, would immediately say, well, you know, five people, should we make it one person? And this, this truck's kind of expensive, and should we make it a bike, or should we make it a car, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it's good fun kind of not having to... Not, not having to answer to real-world concerns in a way. You can kind of... Um, your, where your imagination can take you is, is, is unfettered in, in, in a different way than it is on screen. Like being um, a little god. Right. I mean, I, I, was, I was starting to get nervous even as I was answering that because I was like, gosh, this is sounding quite psychopathic. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful place to end. Please, everyone, will we thank the absolute not-a-psychopath. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.